Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Inside Business and Technology. I'm Kieran Hancock, finance correspondent of the Irish Times, and this week I'm joined in studio by my colleagues Barry Hallon and Pamela Noonan, and from Germany by our Berlin correspondent Derek Scally. We're going to begin this week by discussing Bitcoin, the virtual currency that has gained traction globally in the past 18 months or so. This week, a Bitcoin finance conference is being held in Dublin to promote the new currency. Pamela Noonan spoke to some of the main participants before uh, an excellent feature in tomorrow's Irish Times. Pamela, perhaps you could just explain to us what exactly Bitcoin is and how it'll work. Okay, so Bitcoin first came about in 2009 following the global financial crisis. At the time, there was a lot of mistrust for the banks and so people wanted a payment method where they didn't need any banks involved. Um, A lot of people just see Bitcoin as a currency, but it's also a payment system. Uh, You can send money from one device like a mobile phone or computer to another without any need for a central bank. Um, It's very like, I guess, email in that way. You can just send email, you know, from one computer to another. You don't need to go through a post office or anything like that. But it's a finite currency, is that right? Yes, there's only 21 million Bitcoins worldwide. Uh, They haven't all yet been mined, but once they do, that's it. And I guess they have to have a finite amount because much like money, you can't just keep printing it up, otherwise it devalues it. Right, and it's traded on exchanges. So it, yeah, you can buy it on exchanges, or you can. Um, there's a lot of kind of dealers of it as well in Ireland. There's dealers, Canada, America. In some places, the dealers are regulated. So in Canada, Bitcoin is actually re- regulated, and anyone who you know deals in it has to be registered with the kind of financial transaction center, which is the their equivalent of the revenue commissioners. Yeah, okay. We might just come back to the regulation in a few moments. But it sounds like a bit like gold. There's a finite amount of it. Uh, it's it's uh, going to fluctuate in price. It, it could go up, it could go down. Um, what's been the experience to date? So there's been wild price fluctuations. It's gone from, you know, 18 cents to over $1,000 for one Bitcoin. Um Back kind of two years, three years ago, it was around 32 cents. And uh, the last time I looked a few days ago, it was over $600. Uh, there has been a lot of price vo- volatility because um, there's been some problems with it. There was uh, Silk Road, uh, which was a website where there was a lot of uh, illegal tradings and people were buying things with Bitcoin on that. There was also the collapse of a huge Bitcoin exchange in Japan, uh, the Mount Gox exchange and you know while those kind of things have had put a bit of a downer on bitcoin from time to time you know it still has largely maintained its price and it's prone to hackers so there is a view that it is prone to hackers but actually the protocol that bitcoin is built on is very safe but um where the problems arise is where people are storing it or where third party entities come in so for example like bitcoin was designed for to go from one person directly to another i could send bitcoin from me to you but um third party entities tend to come between and act as like a kind of intermediary between the two people and that's where uh problems arise because it's the third parties that got hacked like Mt. Gox was an intermediary that got hacked okay and is it regulated in Ireland so it's not regulated in Ireland um the central bank have taken a view that you know they're warning people actually that it's not regulated it's not backed by the government and you know the European central bank holds the same view um but it is regulated in other countries to a certain extent. Right, and if I had some Bitcoin, what could I buy in Ireland? 
well. You could go into the Bagot Inn, that pub, and buy yourself a pint of Guinness there. And um, there's a few bed and breakfasts and hotels that accept Bitcoin. Uh, there is actually a Bitcoin ATM on Middle Abbey Street. Um, there's actually an Irish Bitcoin equivalent called Irish Coin. And uh, because there's lots of digital currencies, like Bitcoin isn't the only digital currencies, and Irish Coin was brought out a few months ago. And if you have Irish Coin, you can have uh, discounts in lots of kind of touristy areas. Derek, might bring you in on this conversation. Has Bitcoin been much debated in Germany? Yes, actually, my old neighborhood here in Berlin uh, has developed into a bit of a hotbed of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, payments in the alternative neighborhood of Kreuzberg. They always are the first to get onto new things. And um, in uh, just around the corner from where I used to live, you can buy you know, coffee, you can do photocopies, even buy an album. Um, and the whole neighborhood has embraced the Bitcoin economy. Um, but it's not so not such a new thing in Germany, and particularly in, in Berlin. Lots of neighborhoods uh, worried about the, the march of big retailers, the big box retailers, have actually introduced long before Bitcoin come along. Um, alternative uh, analog currencies to actually keep money uh, in the local economy. So Bitcoin seems to have tapped into that, which would explain uh, why it's taken off in that neighborhood. But beyond Berlin, it's not so much a big thing. The The German finance ministry recognized it as a as a, a private currency unit, not a public unit, because it's not universally recognized as a currency. Uh, and uh, it's not that they were particularly far-minded, uh, they just wanted to be able to tax it. So as soon as you recognize it as Why a currency not? unit, you can uh, you can ask for VAT and income tax on any profits in Bitcoin transactions. So um, that's the that's the German end. It's 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 growing, but it's um, it's not nothing new for many people in cities. What's new is the the digital end to it. Okay, Pamela, back to you. I've seen suggestions that while um, a virtual currency might take hold, it might not be Bitcoin. Uh, we saw in the social media space how Facebook overtook Bebo and MySpace and other uh, early adopters. Uh, what's your view? Yeah, I think, uh, well, right now it's definitely the biggest virtual currency. And in effect, all the other virtual currencies that have come out are copycat versions of Bitcoin. Uh, and they all are kind of built on it, the same protocol as Bitcoin. Uh but as you said earlier, you know, Bitcoin is now where social networking was in 2005. And back then you had loads of social networks. Bebo was huge. MySpace was huge. Orchid was big in America. But then Facebook came along and overtook them all. And, it, it, you know, it is possible that something could come along now and overtake all the virtual cryptocurrencies. And I guess if there was um, a government regulated one, if, if one government, maybe if the United States government decided to bring out their own virtual currency like that, that, that could, could you know, undermine it. Yeah, so looking to the future, how widely adopted do you think Bitcoin will become? I think, like, so 2013 was definitely a game changer in terms of adoption. At the start of 2013, there was only 4,000, 5,000 merchants in the world that accepted Bitcoin. And now, you know, over 100,000, you've got, like, OkCupid, which is the world's largest dating site, WordPress, the world's largest blogging site, Expedia, the travel site. All these big companies have started accepting it. PayPal are looking at it. And also, um, I think a lot of people are con continuing to look at it and a lot of banks worldwide you know I was talking to one of the directors of you know the National Cayman Bank the other day and they're looking into it they've had customers wanting to deal in it 
Okay. Well, perhaps someday Bitcoin will be an acceptable currency uh, at the tills in pennies, the successful Dublin-based value retailer. This week, Derek Scally reported on the success of Penny's expansion across Europe using the Primark band. Uh, pennies now has 13 stores in Germany, and Taoiseach Enda Kenny helped to open its second store in Berlin this week. Derek, first of all, uh, why was the Taoiseach of Ireland opening a Primark store in Berlin, given the many pressing issues facing the government at home? Well, he's in town tomorrow uh, on Thursday because the um, the CDU Economic Council, the CDU is Angela Merkel's uh, governing party, they have a big event uh, in town uh, with lots of big name people, including the finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble and uh, Mario Draghi, uh, the president of the European Central Bank. So um, the opening of Primark, uh, as it's known here in Berlin, just seems to have coincided to that. It's the second store, and um, it's going to be quite big, uh, quite a big event. The media here have been flagged it for what seems like weeks on end at this stage and um, definitely seems to have uh, tapped into uh, a cultural nerve here of course what you have to remember is uh, Germany is the is the belly of the beast of uh, of retail discounting Aldi and Lidl came from here so for an Irish company to come and to beat them at their own game I'll bite in the retail in the clothing sector um, it's quite an achievement now, in your article, you described it as Primania and compared it to the Beatles mania that swept Germany in the 1960s. Uh, what's the secret to its success? And the secret to success in Germany, we've seen it all over uh, Europe. There are 257 stores and the tomorrow's store the, in Berlin will be the 12th in Germany. Um, it just seems to have hit a nerve in terms of fast fashion, low prices, uh, two things that seem to uh, push buttons in teenagers' minds. Uh, one. One person I was speaking to here just a short while ago described it as crystal meth for teenagers. Um, and uh, in Germany, it just seems to have, uh, they seem to have been able to undercut H&M. For years, H&M really was the rule the roost in the high street. Uh, and Primark came in and proved that you can be as fashionable, but even cheaper. And um, in Germany, for about the last decade, there's been sort of a, they call it the stinginess is super culture. It started with a, an electronic retailer coming out with uh, stinginess is super was the, was the slogan. And since then, uh, uh, driven on by Aldi and Lidl, the notion in German minds that it can be high quality and low price with no, with no, uh, no, uh, side effects. It's, it's very strong in, in German minds. Now, of course, lot, lots of campaigners over the years have said there is a price. It's just not the person paying 250 for the t-shirt. It's the person who perhaps, the uh, stitched the t-shirt together in Bangladesh, the person who can least afford it. So at, at the launch, we're going to see the t-shirt. We'll see uh, Bridget Donahue, one of the leading executives of, uh, of Primark. And, uh, but outside, there's going to be huge crowds and also protesters who've promised me a what they call a creative protest. So yeah. it's interesting to see what, what they have in store. And what about those allegations of them operating sweatshops in places like Bangladesh where they're um, apparently paying 30 euro a month uh, to local workers to stitch their clothes? What's the company's response to that? Well, the company's response to that is that they've come a long way in the last year, particularly since uh, the Bangladesh tragedy last year when 1,100 people lost their lives. They say they've signed up uh, to uh, ethical trading initiatives. They insist that all their suppliers pay their employees the minimum wage. And um, to be fair, British campaigners I speak to regularly who would be very vocal critics of Primark have said they have come a long way in the last 18 months. But of course, they would say they're coming from a very low base um, and they, they would wish that Primark would use its clout in the market to um, raise standards, whether they're labour standards or 
um, uh, environmental standards and so there is a long way to go and that seems to be what the German campaigners are looking for. Primer, of course, the standard argument they give is that uh, we just pass on the savings to our customers. Many other people make clothes in these factories but they, they're ripping off their customers is what they effectively say. The standard response to that, of course, is just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it good and um, so it could be a lively event uh, in Berlin. And what's been the impact on, Pen- on Primark's uh, entry into the German market on the competitors? You mentioned H&M, but uh, CNA and Kick, I think a local German retailer, they'd be other competitors as well. Is that yeah. right? Yes, they're all running scared, really. I mean, Primark is just coming with high prices, massive stores, constant flow of clothes. Um, H&M really seemed to have it made. They were pretty much the IKEA of clothing, and people didn't realize it could be done cheaper. So they're sort of struggling a little bit trying to reposition themselves. Um, and uh, German homegrown uh, discounters were just so, they, their clothing offering was so disgusting that um, people are running away from them in droves. So you've got uh, all the all the benefits of German discount and all the stylishness of Swedish or Spanish retailers like Zara. So it seems to be a winning combination and uh, Primark success uh, carries on this week. Pamela, you're probably the most fashionable member of today's <laughs> panel and no doubt you love a bargain. Are you a convert to pennies? I'm not 100% a convert. I think it's good for holiday clothing. If you're going away, you can buy lots of things and never wear them again because they're very cheap. I also like the fact it does support some Irish brands. Um, I'm quite the fake tan fan and they stock Coco Brown fake tan, which is an Irish brand. And it's nice to see that. Uh, And I also think it's very good for essentials like socks and things like that. But I wouldn't shop there on a regular basis. Right. What about you, Barry? Well, I, I, first of all, I've got to say I'm shocked to hear that Pamela's tan isn't real. Um, <laughs> actually, I have to say I do I do shop there a fair bit, and, and a bit like Pam, I'll use it for things that I'm probably not going to use terribly often and, and possibly chuck away. Um, it, one of the things that strikes me about all this is that it, it's taken so long for other people to cop on to just, you know, how good a model it is. And it is kind of ironic that, uh, given the fact that the Germans have had a big, in, big influence on our uh, grocery market mm. that we're now giving it back to them at the, the retail clothing side. Indeed. We'll stick with the high street now. And Barry, you've been reporting this week on a row between Bewley's and its landlord, Johnny Ronan, over the rents on its famous Grafton Street uh, cafe. What happened? Yeah, well, the, the net effect now is Bewley's is, looks like it's facing a, a doubling in its rent bill from about seven, from 728000 a year to $1.46 million, which is quite a hike and and given that we're not really out of this recession yet that is a that is a, a going to you know take a very big chunk out of beauty's revenues um this has really been a two this is a, a two-year-old dispute the rent came up for review in 2012 beauty's challenged a clause in the high court which the landlord maintained would not allow the rent to go down would only allow the rent to mm. go would it would it allow the, the rent to either stay the same or increase the High Court found that Bewley's were correct and said, yes, the rent can, co- can go down. As a result, it fell to 728000 However, the Supreme Court came back yesterday and said, no, that is actually not the case. Um, the, the, the clause that we are arguing about means that the rent either stays the same or goes up. So the, rev- the, the rent now reverts to uh, a level at which uh, Bewley, or to the figure that Bewley's were paying back in 2007 at the height of the property boom. Now, whatever about the the speed or scope of the recovery that we're experiencing at the moment on the high street, um, I doubt very much that it's anything like what it was in 2007. 
And Bewley's are very, very sore indeed about this. Mm. So where does it go from here? Are there any legal avenues left open to Bewley's? Um, I can't say definitively, but I would actually be surprised if there were any legal avenues open to Bewley's. It seems to me that at this point in time, really the options for them are to sit down and talk with the landlord and see if they can do anything about this lease. That is quite complicated. First and foremost, other parties, including Zara, which we were talking about earlier, have expressed interest in that building on Grafton Street in the past. You know it yourself. In fact, it's, it's more or less a national landmark. I think most people know it. And it is in a very, very choice position indeed. And I'm sure that Johnny Ronan and Nickendale feel that they could rent it out to somebody else who might well be willing to pay more for it. The other element is that Ikendel is effectively a client of the state through the through the National Asset Management Agency. Yeah. yeah, they've been referenced by Bewley's in their statement following the Supreme Court judgment. Tell, tell us about their role. Well, uh, effectively, NAMA is Ikendel's banker. From what I can make out, Ikendel owes around twenty million in secured debt, which was originally due to Bank of Ireland, and my guess is that is that is the figure that is now due to NAMA. What people have been saying is effectively that NAMA has been backing Ikendel in its uh, fight to maintain the rent. What's NAMA saying? NAMA is saying NAMA is very determined to remain aloof from all of this and is not saying anything officially on the record. But I suppose sources close to Ikendel have pointed out that look, you know, ultimately the the taxpayer is the landlord here, and NAMA is trying to look out for the taxpayer's interest. Whether that is what NAMA actually thinks or not, we don't know because NAMA won't tell us. Don't tell us, right. Okay. Well, Beauty's has been on Grafton Street since 1927. As you said earlier, it's part of the social fabric of the city. Um, but is there a long-term future for a cafe such as Beauty's on Grafton Street or do the economics simply not stack up anymore? Yeah, it would seem very. It would seem to me very much that g- given that Beauty's actually had trouble maintaining a business there at the height of the boom, um, that it, it may now be very, very difficult for them to maintain a business there at, at, uh, with, with the rent approaching one and a half million, given that consumer spending still has a long way to go to recover. Um, the, the ultimate question is, it really is for Bewley's, and it, it's whether they think it is worthwhile maintaining a, sort of a flagship position on, on what, what is in effect the country's most expensive and most high-profile street, and whether there is a spin-off benefit for their other businesses in doing that, and whether they're willing to pay uh, the current cost of, of maintaining, maintaining the place on it's that It's effectively basis. a marketing tool, isn't it, for yes. the, the Bewley's coffee brand? Yeah, it is. It's something that, that gives the, the, the coffee brand uh, a profile nationally and, and to a certain extent internationally as well, I would say. OK, Barry, you've been covering another story this week involving Ryanair. Uh, Howard Miller, the Deputy Chief Executive and Chief Financial Officer, uh, is due to step down later this year. This follows on very quickly from Michael Cawley, uh, also a Deputy Chief Executive, uh, leaving the airline. Uh, where does this leave the succession stakes in relation to Michael O'Leary, who's been in charge of Ryanair now for... What since since the mid nineteen eighties? Yeah, well, the, the the read that I've that, that that I'm getting at this at this point in time is is really that it, it means that Michael is around for uh, um, a, a few years to go, and that it seems that really that the the fact that both uh, Cawley and Miller have departed or announced their well in in Cawley's case gone, and in Miller's case announced um, his departure that. This means that there is no, you know, there is no room in the top job for either of them, and that um, Michael intends to stay there for some time to come and see the airline through through its next growth phase, which we're assuming is sort of five to ten years. So maybe around until twenty nineteen at least. And Howard Miller will actually still have an involvement with Ryanair, won't he? Going yeah, he's been invited to join the board as a non-executive. 
um, something that has also happened to Collie, and Collie is now actually a member of the board, and Miller will be taking up that position, from my understanding, uh, next year after he steps down as Chief Financial Officer. Okay, we'll watch and wait and see what happens with Ryanair in the coming months and years. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks to Derek Scally, Barry Halloran and Pamela Noonan for their contributions. I'd also like to thank producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer JJ Byrne. I'm Kieran Hancock. Take care. <laughs>